You guys, you guys hear my voice? First time since January 21st, 2017. Back in action. He's alive. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's alive. <laughs> Josh, Josh, Josh isn't dead. He's just an accountant. Special guest, Josh Ginter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it is good to have you though. We were, uh, we were just joking that the last time you had a conversation with us here in Skype was like January, which is just sad. Uh, yep. Yep. I, I admit basically dropped off the face, face of the earth. Lots going on in our little, uh, little neck of the woods down here. So, uh, yeah, yesterday was tax deadline day. So for any crazy, anybody who's non-Canadian, it's basically a day from hell. Right. But you survived. Survived. Got home after yeah. 13 or 14 hours at the office. And yeah, I mean, for some people, that's a normal day. And you can never brag about how hard you work. That's not what it is. What it, about, eh. That's not what it's about. But <laughs> it's tiring. So anyway, done. Back in action. Now I can like enjoy the nice weather. We've had unseasonably warm weather here. In, we talked about the weather. Now, see, I was, nice. I was avoiding it. I was Check. avoiding it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But seriously, we don't have any blooms like here the way like I, I go onto Instagram. And I see all these amazing photos of everybody's, you know, spring blossoms. And we still have just brown death here. Really? But it is warm. So, right. oh. yeah, you know, it usually takes until the middle of May for, for everything to kind of spring into action here. But um, at least it's warm. Right. So, right. Yeah. Go outside with shorts. Well, for what it's worth, it's been unseasonably cold over here for the past few days. And then today, it's wonderful. So, that, so, so that means it's, it's like 25 there Celsius instead? Uh, higher, of higher. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> unseasonably cold. I'm, I'm sunburned right now. <laughs> oh, my God. No, no. It's unseasonably cold was last week. It was about five degrees or so. Oh, I see. So. Okay, fine. Oh, it's like the best kind of weather. You take, put a seat, like if it's still nice and like green outside. Five degrees is wonderful. Yeah, you see, you say best, but I don't think that means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> Throw on a jacket, nice crisp, you know, the dew on the grass is cold on the feet. I don't know. It's great. Oh my God, you're so Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I try hard. <laughs> um, well, while you were heads down doing your accounting stuff, we had some, uh, I guess you'd call it an overflow of news. Um, Sony released all the things um, as they are wont to do. Um, I think, most of today is going to be spent just catching up with all of that stuff and what it means and what they claim it means and um, some interesting little tidbits that have um, come up since the announcement. Um, we, we have the advantage of, um, because there's been a slight gap since the announcement to when we're talking now, um, we've started to see the first trickle of hands-on tests, um, early reviews, and benchmarks and things like that. So we, we are beginning to get a picture of how um, accurate those claims are in terms of, you know, what the real world performance is instead of just the spec sheet stuff. Yeah. And for the most part, it is pretty accurate. Yeah. I mean, they, I don't, I don't think they were bragging that much so far. Yeah. But we should, we should sort of recap. So what, what is the, the full scope of what they announced here? Let's start with something small. The thing, the DSLR killer. Da, da, da. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not to overstate things or <laughs> Not anything. To overstate things. Yeah. Um, A9. A9, man. Wow. We've been waiting for this one for a while. We have been. I mean, it, it, it hasn't been a really long time in terms of the industry as a whole. But for, for Sony, Sony, it's, it's been, been like, like a, year a century and a half. And a half. Yeah. It's, it's, been, it's been crazy. It's been but the good news is we now know that Sony listened to our podcasts. Yeah. Because. They pretty much nailed everything we asked for, I think. Could, couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah. So tell us, Josh, what do you like about the, the, the new like A9 about, okay, the okay. most? Yeah. So here we go. Tiny little bit of backstory. 
I bought my Sony and all of my lenses in January 2016. At that time, there was no X-Pro2. There was no X-T2. There was an A7R2, which was still like in the 4500 Canadian dollar range, I think. Something like that. Right. So like the only option I had at the time was an A7 II. And now all of the cameras, all of them, like Canon and Nikon or Nikon and all these companies... They've released something in the last 15 months, and I'm just like sitting here twiddling my thumbs, getting really, really annoyed that <laughs> nothing fits, you know. So anyway, I t- start talking to Marius. I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should go to Fuji because they have everything that I want. Like Fuji X-T2 has a joystick, and it's got, you know, better weather sealing, and it's got good ergonomics. Oh, you know, pretty good er- ergonomics. It's dual fast, card slots. Dual card slots, better battery. It's got everything. It's like perfect, except it doesn't have the full frame sensor. Right. So what does Sony do? It releases an X-T2 with a full-frame sensor, and Josh jumps for joy. <laughs> that is a pretty accurate description, I would say. I mean, of course, it, it does push the state of the art in terms of performance a little bit farther than what the X-T2 can do. Uh, but then again, this is Sony we're talking about, so that's expected from them. But yeah, yeah, they are pretty similar. It, it's unbelievable how, like... It, I had like a checkbox, a list of things, and I think every single box got nailed. So joystick or focus point, focus control joystick thing on the back. Done. Check. Uh, bigger battery. Check. Better EVF or electronic viewfinder. Check. Uh, second dial on the top for like switching really quickly from single autofocus to continue autofocus to all the other types of autofocus. Check. Right. Um, what else am I missing? Like, yeah, the... The Sony A9, and then, of course, it even, believe it or not, it even keeps the 24 megapixel sensor, which is something that I wanted to keep because right. if we went any larger, then, you know, my measly 500 gigabyte solid state drive might fill up a little quicker. So I, I don't, I shoot for the web. So basically, need I need, I like smaller photos, smaller file sizes. So anyway, so this is like perfect. It's, it's just like basically a perfect camera. So let me, let me ask you about it the other way, though. Uh, was there anything that you were not expecting and that turned out to be included in the A9? Um, I did not expect the focus joystick because I think you had talked a lot about um, you had talked a lot about how like Sony with the A6500 went to the touchscreen thing, right? Where you choose right. with your thumb. So right. I, I, I thought that was actually really logical on your part. I thought that was pretty, pretty correct. So, you know, I, I didn't expect to see the focus joystick. Uh, and lots of people say, you know, you don't really need to use it. I, I use it a lot, like with the products, photography, like still life. You know, sometimes a camera, if you know, things aren't moving or sometimes it just chooses the wrong thing that I want to focus on. So I, I have to get into the menus and press buttons and spin things around and it drives me insane every time I have to do it. Hmm. So that is a welcome addition. The dual ST card slots make sense. I'm glad, like for a person like me, I'm glad they didn't go to those bigger, what, what are they called? The, the XQD uh, cards. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. they didn't go to those uh, because I it would be another thing I'd have to buy. But um so, you know, I think it seemed obvious that they were going to go with two. So that doesn't surprise me. What I am surprised with is an actual touchscreen on the back of the A9. Right. I don't know. I don't know why I'm surprised about it, but I I, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was actually going to happen. So it, it's not like fully touchable, right? Like it's just mostly for. Yeah, it's very limited, right. weirdly limited, right. I would say. And, and that's surprising because if they if you're going to do it, you might as well do it all the way. Right. Exactly. I have a feeling it had something to do with. um heat and 
um, power constraints. You know, they they tried to like they wanted because the the kitchen sink company they wanted to make sure that touch screen was on the spec sheet. But I, I think when they were implementing it, they were like, wait a minute, if we if we do this the the right way, it's going to have negative impact elsewhere, and we just want to avoid that. So it's but why would it though? Well, who knows? Because the touch sensors are there, the functionality is there. It seems to be a software limitation. Possibly, yeah. It might have been something that they just didn't get a chance to fully develop for the 1.0 firmware. And when we get you know, their regular firmware updates, um, they'll expand on that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Speaking of regular firmware updates, I really hope they improve on, on that aspect because they don't have the best track record. I mean, they're doing... They, they did okay with the previous generation cameras, the a7 II, R2, and S2. They did release a few firmware updates, but not nearly as many as companies like Fuji or Olympus. Screw so, firmware yeah. upgrades, up, updates, just sell a new camera. Right. <laughs> that fixes everything. So, One more thing I was surprised about, though, and this, this is has to be mentioned. I did not think that my checklist would cost... 4,500 US dollars or 6,500 or 6,000 Canadian dollars. I did not think that all of the little uh, toys that I was hoping to have would cost that amount. And maybe they don't. Maybe we'll find an A7 III trickles down the stream in the next two months or so, three months maybe. And it costs a lot less. And if yeah. that's the case, like that is my next camera. No doubt about it. Yeah, I, I would say that the main uh, reason the cost went up so much is the new sensor and the performance that you can get from it. That's what where all the R&D was spent. Right. <laughs> 693 phase detection points. 693. Yeah, that's overkill. And that, that's what places this camera straight into high-end professional territory because the, uh, it's just professionals that shoot sports and action. Those are the ones who demand that kind of performance from their camera. Everybody else is just fine with 10, 12 frames per second. That's just more than enough to capture everyday life. So it, it makes sense that they would push performance so much and then, of course, charge for it. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if a future A7 III was priced more reasonably and the performance was also pared down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly their sports camera. And I think that part of the pricing is making sure that this is in the same conversation with the D5 and the 1DX Mark IIs of the world. Um, oh, yeah. And, and you know, part of that is you, you've got to price it that way because otherwise people will not see it on equal footing. Um, but in terms of performance, you know, it certainly ticks off all of those boxes. I'm, I'm less concerned with the number of AF points as with, you know, the coverage, which is very nice. Um, But what struck me immediately as bizarre was how much they're leaning on an electronic shutter versus a mechanical shutter um, to get this performance. And, you know, the, the, the reason is pretty cool because you, you basically get um, minimal blackout if at all um, between shots at, at this crazy burst rate. But, um, the potential downsides seem to still be there in terms of rolling shutter. And I don't, I haven't seen yet any conclusive tests that, um, that prove to me that they've managed to overcome that problem because rolling shutter, uh, technically could be eliminated by implementing, um, a different kind of shutter system that reads the entire surface at once instead of, um, you know, scanning it like it does now. Um, so I, I don't like, I'm, I'm trying to think, if I were a sports photographer doing, for example, um, races, car races or horse races or something like that, um, rolling shutter would be a really big concern 
there. And that's where, you know, th this whole electronic shutter thing seems like um, maybe a bit of a risky maneuver because yeah. until until it's like conclusively proven that that's not something to worry about, there's no way in hell that I, as a Nikon or a Canon um, pro level shooter would even consider switching away because that's, that's just a risk that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to, to do that. Like there's not, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's strange. So that's, that's one question yeah. mark that remains for me as we, as we read through these early impressions. Yeah. It strikes me as a, as a statement from Sony because they were probably the worst offender in the previous generation. Their rolling shutter was pretty terrible, especially for yeah. video. Uh, everybody used to say that Sony cameras are great and they shoot great high quality video, but the rolling shutter is just awful. Yeah. And this seems to be like totally a statement from them, like saying, we fixed the problem. Here's a camera that can shoot, that shoots better because it has an electronic shutter. Uh, it's no longer a compromise. It's actually enabling us to do things that no mechanical shutter can do, uh, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I have to say, uh, it remains to be seen if it is a hundred percent fixed, but judging from the early reviews, for still pictures, it seems to be pretty much a non-issue. Uh, but for video, there appears to be still slightly, uh, well, just a little bit of rolling shutter. I, I, I think it was Jordan from the Camera Store TV who mentioned it in one of his YouTube videos. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll know soon enough when the camera hits the market and everybody gets their hands on it. Uh, I think it's going to be... Regardless of that, I think it's going to be a very popular camera. I think it's going to sell like hotcakes among the professional uh, users that it's targeted at, of yeah. course. It's interesting to me that all of these camera manufacturers have decided that sports and action is their top end. Like the most advanced cameras that they right. make are for sports and yeah. action shooters. And it's it just, I, you know, it's not, um, I guess it's not that surprising because that is the kind of challenge that requires the most advanced technology in terms of autofocus, um, in terms of burst rates and um, buffers and things like that. But it's just interesting because now this is clearly this is Sony's uh, top of the line um, mirrorless camera that, you know, they've established the ceiling within their ecosystem, which is which is cool. Right. But like the 1DX for Canon and the D5 for Nikon, it's it's like it's clearly an action oriented camera because if I were an A7R2 owner, for instance, and I bought that camera because I do fine art or landscape or, um, you know, things like that, the A9 wouldn't tempt me at all because not only right. is it like ridiculously expensive, but it's a step backwards in terms of the factors that are most important to that kind of shooting. So it's just, you know, it's it's a cool um, setup now. We, we get to understand better where each of the cameras is fitting into their lineup. And um, for me, what's going to be interesting is seeing what the A7 lineup for 2017 looks like. Are they going to maintain the same, you know, baseline entry-level A7 and then the S for video and then the R for resolution? Is there going to be a different approach? Um, you know, it's there's a lot of cameras. I think that's, that's fundamentally one of the things that is either a good thing or a bad thing, um, depending on how you look at it. Like within the Sony ecosystem, you have a lot of different bodies to choose from. And someone like Olympus right. says, you know what, we're going to make one flagship camera that is just the best on every front that we can do. And then Sony's like, well, we've got this, this technological baseline that we'll put everywhere, but we're going to specialize. So if you want these particular things, you get this camera. If you want the other particular things, you get that camera. And if you want pro support, you get two cameras. Uh. Um, so... Um, 
But yeah, I, I don't know. What do you guys think the uh, lineup will look like? Right. But at least they're differentiating the cameras. Yeah, but is that a good thing? I think so, because Fuji's lineup seems to be a lot more confusing for me. For because me, they have is. two flagships that apparently are supposed to be the same. And then it turns out when they release a firmware update, some people get upset because they are not equally supported. So that's kind of... Uh, I mean, if I had to choose one, I would only... Uh, have my instinct and my personal preference for the style, you know, rangefinder versus SLR to make the decision because on paper they are extremely similar cameras. Imagine trying to sell that. Oh, yeah, we have this camera with all of these specs and we have this camera with all the same specs, but, uh, you know, if you want a rangefinder, then you go this way. Oh, I, I would I'd be a nightmare trying to sell it. It's not that difficult to sell because basically you say, if you want a Fuji camera and you want it to be a flagship, you buy the X-T2, period, full stop. But the X-Pro2 is their flagship. They're both, it doesn't matter. The, the point is the, the flagship for everybody is the X-T2. That's just the way it is. That's the one that, that does the most things. It's got the most robust spec sheet and it's the most familiar, especially for people switching from DSLRs because the styling is similar. Right. Technically... Well, my impression anyway is that if you if you're interested in an X Pro two, you already know that you're you're going in with this notion that you appreciate an optical viewfinder, and thus that might bias. Like if you go in and you're like, I don't shoot 4K video, I like my optical viewfinders, or I just like the rangefinder styling. I think that that camera is less um, intimidating or less you know whatever it is for you. Then you have that option there. The fact that it's more expensive is is really I you know that's. It's a different story, um, but in terms of firmware, um, yeah, it's frustrating that they don't get exactly the same features in parity. But the differences between them at this point are very subtle. Like it's not, uh, there aren't gaps that are totally transforming what one can do versus the other. Setting aside the 4K video, obviously that's not a firmware issue. So I, I don't know, but that's still two cameras, right? And then you step down to the XT20, right? Or you step sideways to the X100. Oh yeah, you know, the jump from those two to the rest of the lineup is very clear and that there's no possible confusion there. Yeah, it's just between those two. I, I get it that it's a little murky. Yeah, and then you have Canon. Yeah, they are pushing the 1DX Mark II, is it? Yeah. Uh, for for action and sports, but then they also have the 5DSR, which is the 50 megapixel monster that it's also pretty expensive. So every camera seems to be hedging their bets a little bit. Every, every company, I mean... They seem to be hedging their bets a little bit because for some people, resolution will be the most important thing. For others, it will be low light performance and for others, it will be video and for others, it will be action. So yeah, it, it kind of makes sense that they're doing that. And even Fuji are doing the same thing because yeah, you say X-T2 is the flagship within the X system, but now you have the GFX too, right. which is the real flagship and that's no action camera. <laughs> so sure, yeah, yeah it's, it's complicated, but... I guess the bottom point is that what the bottom line is that you have options for pretty much every possible need. True. Today and, and so that's a good true. thing. Did you so, guys see yeah. the awesome weirdo half grip thingy that they that they uh released alongside the A9? Not until you mentioned it, but yeah. It is the coolest little grip ever. <laughs> the most expensive yeah, little grip yeah. ever. I could probably print one with a 3D printer <laughs> faster than I could buy one, but the coolest grip ever. Anyway, just need to throw that in there. Get you guys <laughs> back into Sony territory here. 
It's neat. I don't know. I don't know why no no one's ever done that before. Because at least for me, that's that is exactly the pain point. Yeah. In terms of grip, is I want it to be longer vertically on that side and just a heftier thing for the right hand. Like I don't care about the left side. There's no reason for the grip to add weight to the other side of the camera, which is fine. Like I'm not gripping it from that side. That's not you know I support with the lens. It's it's okay. Uh, I I really hope that other manufacturers will make this kind of grip. Um, for non-Sony cameras as well, because it's just, it's such a good idea. Totally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, this was one of my pain points too. Uh, and I actually mentioned it in my review of the A7 II a whole year and a half ago. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm super glad that they've decided to pay attention to it and acknowledge that it is a problem. And I don't have particularly big hands, but if I did, it would be even worse. So yeah. Too bad it takes up the tripod mount though. That kind of, that kind of, sucks yeah but if you if you need if you need to put it on a tripod man then you're not holding the camera so well, i don't think okay, it's a big fair deal. enough i have a strap though that like my, my shoulder sling it uh, attaches by the tripod mount right so now like I, I either have the grip or i don't yeah you know it is right. whatever it, not a huge end of the world thing but it is kind of annoying so does it still difference. have a strap lug on the uh like w- when you have the grip attached it must right because that it doesn't interfere with that I think it must, right? Because I'm just thinking out loud. If you if you wanted to, uh, you could use something like the uh, like the Peak Design uh, straps to to get like a sling instead of using the the tripod mounted ones, right? Like you could just you could. I'm not sure you can actually, but anyway. But either way, the grip as it as a, as a concept, I think, is great, and and I hope that uh, that other manufacturers and even third party manufacturers, like forget the forget the main guys, like I want the. Uh, all the little third-party folks out there to look at this and be like, "Oh, great idea! Let's make yeah. one for Fuji. Let's make one for Olympus. Let's make one for, yeah. you know, for everybody." Because it's it's great. I really can't wait for the made in China thirty-dollar version of this. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because one hundred and thirty bucks for something like that, which is essentially a piece of plastic, off the charts, is yeah. not fun. Yeah, it's a bit much. Yeah. So they also fun. announced a few other things, though. Uh, we'll get to that the other sweet creamy bokeh uh, lens later on, mm-hmm. um, but. They also announced a new GM lens. So the 100 to 400 millimeter, was it at 4.5 to 5.6? Something like that. Something like that, yeah. So sports action lens to go with the sports action camera. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good, but it's also, um, th- this is something where I feel like um, Sony's still behind uh, where they want to be. And it's, you know, it's reasonable because these kinds of lenses take time to develop. But realistically, no sports photographer is going to be switching because of this lens. Like that's not what they're after. They're not after the long range um, zooms here. They it's all about the primes, you right. know, the big five hundreds and six hundred primes. And until Sony has um, native glass there, I mean, yes, you can adapt it, and that's that's another um, advantage with Sony is that it's relatively simple to to adapt um, glass. Um, but still, if if you're trying to make the case for Sony as your as your main system and remaining natively within that ecosystem, there are still gaps in the telephoto end that are going to prevent a lot of the high-end sports folks that they're targeting from considering it. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. Unfortunately. This is a great lens. And, you know, don't get me wrong, like this is going to be a very good um, addition to the lineup because it it provides reach that just wasn't there before. Um, but it's not, it's not like now they can just rest and be like, okay, well, we solved that problem. Now we've got speed and we've got reach. We're done. That's, you know, there's more to do. I think the message from this lens is it shows promise and it it asks for patience. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. give us time. We know you need these longer lenses and we're working on it. And if you think about it, it's actually quite conservatively specced because it's not pushing the range or the aperture. Yeah. It's just a very versatile, all-around, long telephoto lens. Yeah. I think they're focusing on maintaining the excellent sharpness and image quality that the GM lenses all seem to share. That seems to be the, the selling factor in that uh, lineup. And I, I'm pretty sure they're, they, they must be working on longer lenses. They just seem to be taking their time. And if, if I had to bet, I, I'd say they won't release them until they, they are able to provide the same image quality in, in just the, the longer form factors. And we'll see. I mean, this entire GM lens lineup, like it's kind of more or less, it's, it's uh, priced out of my range, more or less. But <laughs> it's really, really encouraging to know that that a Sony, like this is a priority, right? Getting these lenses out there that will, uh, that will match or at least challenge Canon's L glass for, for professional photographers. And I still get into arguments with some people about how Canon L glass is way better. Cause it's, you know, it's sharper. And I said, no, like guys, like I think the GM lenses are like proven to be sharper and offer, you know, better subject or background fall off and this and that and the next thing. But you know, the, everybody argues about the L glass character, right? Like that, that look that it gives images. So well, the problem with the problem with L glass is that you have literally decades worth of, of L glass out there. And so you've got L lenses that by today's standards are crap. Yeah. And then you've got the <laughs> Mark II, uh, you know, the, the Mark II revisions of those lenses that are again, fantastic and designed for, uh, for, for these days and, and the expectations. And there are even a couple of Mark III. Exactly. Too. Right. So that's, no. that's why I think the, um, the discussion around L glass gets complicated because unlike all these other systems that, you know, the mirrorless systems are young. We have to remember that like they're all five years old, um, you know, six years old, maybe 10. Canon's got like 30 year old lenses out there and it's they're, they're, they're beloved because people have been using them for so long and they're they're used to the character and they're used to the the drawbacks and things like that. But yeah, if, if you're going to make an argument that it's sharper, then I don't think yeah, that's nope. tenable unless you're talking about the Mark II's and the Mark III versions, in which case, yeah, I mean, they're they're very good lenses. There's a, there's a reason that Canon has the uh, prestige that it has around that. It's not all marketing. It is actually really good lens design. But right. hey, long story short is that this lens lineup, Sony's lens lineup for professional photographers is growing, which means that they're focusing on it and uh, it's not going to go away. So that's, you know, that's always yeah. a little bit of a, a worry, right? In the back of, of people who adopt non-Canon or non-Nikon, you know, setups or kits. Like. Yeah, there's something else too, which is that because Canon lenses and Nikon lenses have been around for so long, the, the secondhand market is huge for those lenses. You can find excellent L lenses for, I don't know, half the, the, the cost of it, what it would cost you to buy them new because they're around and everybody changes lenses every now and then and they sell the, their old glass and you can just buy it. So that's how it works. And I'm really excited to see the day where the Sony secondhand market flourishes and it becomes normal to buy used Sony lenses for the E-mount system. Uh, because right now, it's really not the case. You can find them if you look very hard, but the prices you find are usually not that great compared to buying new. You may as yeah, well just exactly. buy brand new. Yeah, in a lot of cases, that's that's definitely it. And there's also the, um, especially with regards to sports, um, 
and and things like um well, yeah, sports journalism, for, for instance, a lot of the times it's not actually the photographers who own the glass to begin with, right? It's, right. it's a an equipment locker that is owned by the media company and the photographers on staff get to use it. So they will have $50,000 worth of Canon L glass in a locker and that's what that's what goes out. So the photographers can be like, I want to switch to Sony. And their employer's like, we use yeah, Canon. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the end of the discussion. There's no, like, that's the, that's going to be the struggle for Sony is if they want to make meaningful inroads into this industry, they have to find a way to capture those guys, right? It's not the individuals because the individuals totally no problem. If they're buying that kind of glass, they've obviously got the means to invest that way. They'll be able to get lots of money back for selling off their Canon kit. And if the performance is there and if they get the reach that they need, okay. But if you're talking about the companies who own this stuff, then they're going to need to see reliability. They're going to need to see this pro support that we're inching our way towards talking about. They're going to need to see a lot of different options in terms of telephoto primes, in terms of zooms. Um, It's just, it's a very complicated market to bust into. And they're, uh, you know, time is not on their side. But again, if anyone can do it, I would put my money on Sony because they have a lot of money to throw at the problem. And they've shown that they're dedicated to making big waves in imaging in general and it's paying off for them so you know more power to them i would like to see competition in that space right i mean for the longest time it's basically been um canon and nikon in that area and that's it like full stop so i'm all for having more people there because it pushes everyone to do better do we hop into the next awesome gm lens which has really made me salivate (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh guys this is like proof that my little bokeh um, addiction is still not quenched. But what are you going to so, do without those cat's eye shapes? Oh man! So the we we really haven't talked about the Sony 100 millimeter STF lens on this show yet. Seriously? Yeah, we haven't. You're the only one who likes it. My gosh, guys! So they also have like this is back in like. Was it the end of December, early January, maybe? Oh man, it's been so long. So like, Sony's <laughs> it's got been this, a while, something like that. Yeah, Sony's got this hundred millimeter bokeh master, and um, it's like an f two eight. They say it's an f two eight. It's actually f five six, or it allows f five six in of light in. Right, that's how it works. Yeah, the t stop is f five six, and the f stop is f two eight. And so this STF thing is actually, what do they call it? It's actually an apodization filter. Is that how they say it? And then it stops a lot of light from coming in, but makes the backgrounds like unbelievably beautiful. Yeah, it kind of softens the edges of the highlights in bokeh. And you get perfectly round balls that have a smooth edge instead of the, uh, you know, the, the stark edges that you can see in most regular lenses. And the way they can they can create that effect is by inserting a neutral density filter that is graduated towards the edges of the of the lens. So if you look at, at the lens from the front, you can see that the, the outer part of the lens is darker than the center. Right. Wow. Neato. So that, that explains yeah. why you get uh, less light through because there's a filter there that it's darkening the, the image and it's only darkening it towards the edges. Right. Yeah, the the effect basically, if you're if you're trying to imagine what this does, the best way that I've found to describe it is if you know Photoshop and you know that when you're doing adjustments, you can there's a control for feathering things. Um, it basically does that. It's feathering the edges of uh, the hard edges of things in the background, right. so that instead of 
looking, you know, like if you've got a, if you've got a bokeh ball and it looks like it's kind of drawn um, with other lenses, here it will just look like this faded, beautiful little splotch um, that may or may not be in the shape of the right kind of animal's eye <laughs> for Josh. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this lens is um, is cool. For some reason, I, I keep looking at the um, at the example images and I'm not moved by them. I'm not really seeing anything that that makes me excited about it. I think it's a it's obviously a very good lens, but for some reason, its character is not speaking to me. Right. Fair enough. I don't know. So believe it or not, I actually watched <clears throat> a Jason Lanier video and and liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, I shouldn't say believe it or not. He actually does okay work. It's just that he's, I don't know, very pro Sony. But anyway, long story short is he showed off the. Um, the 70 to 200 f2.8 G Master lens uh, at 100 millimeters at f2.8, and they, you know, compared those images to the 100 millimeter f2.8 STF lens, right. and like the difference. Uh, now I, I got to say the 70 to 200 millimeter G Master lens is really it came out impressive. I was really impressed with the results. However, the STF was just like every picture, every photo he shot comparing the the two. I preferred the STF look like. Easily, it was it was really it was really impressive. So, um, yeah, his, his comparison is and his comparison images were, were what kind of made me drool a little bit. Um, so, yeah, he also showed a little bit of the macro. Uh, there's a little bit of a macro functionality here. I don't think it's a full on macro, but it gives you a little bit more, um, a little better close focusing. Right. Yeah, getting in on the smallest details. It's not a full macro lens, but so like for me, I I was like. You know, I like bokeh. I like background blur. Um, I've got a little like home lighting setup thing now. So I don't like light for me isn't as a big an issue as it used to be. And I kind of want a little bit of a macro functionality myself. So I've really been considering this lens. Um, but I don't know, guys, like really is hard to imagine it using an F5.6 lens. Like right. that, that, that's hard. Well, I, I mean. So anyway. It does let in, I mean, it. Technically, the amount of measured light is f/5.6, but you'll get bokeh-wise, you'll get results that are more in line with with f/2.8, like optically. I don't know if that makes but, but sense, but effectively, that I can only use this lens for like six months a year, because you know I get home from work at five o'clock in the winter months, and like the sun's down. Well, at that point, like f/5.6 is useless. Well, that's where you're, what your lights are for. Right, but I mean, and I, I, they can get bright enough to compensate, but it, it's, I don't know, it's just not the same. Like, um, it's just not the same. So that's the only hiccup with me right now is is that, and it's not a for G Master, but by the by the range of the G Master prices, I, I guess it is kind of less expensive. But right, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool lens pretty specialized lens for probably for portrait photographers or wedding photographers pretty pretty directed at that group of people yeah yeah definitely i guess it, it's up to me to play the unpopular one <laughs> this time around because i really don't like the look of the of the images either but it's not just because the character that it has doesn't speak to me like marius mentioned it i just dislike pretty much everything about it. I like my bokeh to have more character. I like it to have edges. I like it to have imperfections. I actually prefer the bokeh of the 85mm bodies to the GM, which has been another frequent topic of discussion Sticking here on the show. On this show. So, yeah, I guess it, it just the good thing is 
bokeh is subjective, and I don't understand why lately everyone in the industry seems to believe that round round bokeh balls, circular bokeh balls, are better than non-circular bokeh balls, and I don't understand why some people believe that soft edges are better than stark edges. I just don't get it. I prefer it the other way around, and I guess that's just me. Because Sony said so. And they needed something new to sell. Yeah, <laughs> Sony guess. said so. So they also have a cheap 85mm lens, which is making everybody kind of drop their jaws and look at the baddest 85 and think that it's overpriced, eh? Yeah, yeah. And and that's yeah. got to be... I, I can't imagine size being too happy about it. <laughs> no, I'm not too happy about it. Goodness, I, I've been tempted to sell my 85 baddest and get this cheaper Sony one and then use the cash to put towards something else. Right, because the thing is, the, the new Sony 85mm lens is 600 bucks, well, while the baddest is like exactly twice as much as 1200 And the, the image quality out of the lens is virtually identical to the baddest. It's maybe a little bit worse when it comes to fringing, like chromatic aberration. When you have a, a very high contrast areas in an image, you can sort of see the fringe in, on the Sony lens and not so much on the bodies. And also, uh, I don't remember what else was it. Ah, yeah, flaring is also not as great, apparently, because the bodies has uh, better coatings and, and stuff. But other than that, and those are very easy to fix in post, both things. Other than that, I'd say they are pretty much identical. I mean, they are indistinguishable, actually. The bokeh is the same, the sharpness is the same, everything else seems to be the same, and it's half as much. So that's got some people scratching their heads. The baddest looks cooler. The baddest looks cooler, guys. It's way cooler. <laughs> it's got that awesome shape. Yeah, I mean, and for someone who already owns the baddest, I'm not sure that, that um, you know, you'd want to trade down or trade across but for someone who's looking to buy their first 85 in the system it's like it's a no-brainer it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to to pay twice as much for almost no meaningful improvement um other than the way it looks but that's uh, a different <laughs> and you discussion get an OLED but screen I, that tiny little OLED screen it's like the most useless thing in the world but it looks cool it is cool yeah no i mean the, the baddest <laughs> lenses are very are very are very cool um but they're also like this is this is a clear example of uh other things other ways to approach the uh, uh yeah. uh the lens design uh thing and wait we should probably say that the bodies is stabilized which i didn't mention and that's a, a valid difference between the two if you shoot an APS-C body that is not stabilized like the a6300 right. or even a first generation a7 camera then yeah the bodies is going to be the better lens uh, but if you have a stabilized camera like the second generation a7 bodies or the a6500 then you shouldn't notice pretty much any difference between the two so yeah so let's get to the moral of the story here though guys so along with all of these little things that they've been announcing not little big things they've been announcing they actually of all things probably the biggest announcement is their improved pro support sony's new pro support or, or expanded pro support is probably a better way of right. saying it right it, it existed yeah but it wasn't very good um, as Matt Gra Matt Granger, right? He's the guy who kind of ripped him in that video. Yeah, awesome ripping. Oh, I sure love did. that. I love that. <laughs> yep. And it's that almost hurt. like they took it straight to heart because a lot of the things he asked for, a lot of the things he asked for, uh, they implemented more or less, right. or or will be implemented shortly. So it's only in the U.S. right now, right? The expansion is only like they're going to have walk-in stores in New York and L.A. And yeah. it's coming to Canada. And did they say it's coming to Europe as well? 
I'm not sure. I, I haven't heard much of it, but I would be surprised if it if it wasn't. I mean, right. they have to bring it here sooner or later. They will. So, like, they they've got. I I can't remember all the spe- specifications of this new pro support plan, but what is it? You get three checkups a year on your equipment, and it's like next day delivery on on equipment in in the U.S. Right. Right. For like for fixes and stuff like that. Um, there's Something like, like try that. before before you buy loans, which would be really cool. Um, and like it, remarkably, it's only a hundred bucks a year. I, I'm I, I'm not sure how expensive the other competitor pro support plans are, but I I thought a hundred dollars like that that's an easy insurance plan to buy if you own all of the required equipment. Right. It's also um, they one of the things that has not changed, and we we actually we were discussing this before on the show. One of the things that they do is they require an application process, and you have to show them examples of your work and stuff like that. So it's not just that you pay the money and you're right, in. Right. The way that they describe it is that it's still it's still something that you apply for, and you either get it or you don't. So um, yeah, it's a hundred bucks, but. I guess they're reserving the right to say you're not important enough for us to dedicate these resources or right. whatever. Like, yes, you've you've invested a lot in our system, but too bad for you. Like, I I don't really. It's an odd thing, right? It's kind of, that's so subjective, isn't it? It's super, yeah. Like, so you got somebody who's going to say yay or nay on a on an application, but you have no idea how much that photographer makes money wise. Like, how much of their income they generate through photography purposes like what if they're like cutting edge and it's like a new type of photography and the person on the other end of the app like accepting applications is saying no i hate this type of photography you don't get pro support like well it just it raises a lot of questions right and i think the problem is right now we don't have any reports of people who have tried to sign up and been rejected right right? because then we could start to build an understanding of okay on what basis are they saying no to these people right because if you're sending in an application it means you've already got the equipment, right? I assume that they check for that before you can even um, do the application. If you're if you're being refused because you don't have the requisite equipment, that's not you know like obviously. But when do they say no? If I have the equipment that I need to, if I'm willing to pay the money, like what? That's the part where it currently seems strange, and I'm not I'm not clear on why they have this at all. Like what? Why do you need to see my portfolio images? I think it's just a form of insurance. Like they are protecting themselves. They're keeping the right to say no to anyone doesn't mean that they will but being with this being a new service they might be uh, concerned that some people might try to abuse the system or even just test it right. to report on YouTube yeah. or whatever and at this time with with the service being so new and I mean it's going to take them time to get traction and to do things right so in the beginning we will see stories of people who's either sent a camera for repair and they didn't get it back in time. These things are going to happen until the, the network gets up to speed and it starts working smoothly. And I think this this yeah. just might be sort of like keeping the right to say no to protect themselves from bad press eventually. Yeah, uh, it doesn't mean that if you're a you know a personal photographer or professional photographer, you apply. I would be very surprised if they rejected applications just based on the quality of your work because who are they to judge that, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that they've done enough? Have have they given pros enough here in this plan to to make them make pros excited because if if it, it like the equipment is there, more or less, the equipment is there, like, you know, cameras and lenses, more or less. So if this was the one box that needed to be checked for a lot of pro- professional photographers was the support, 
does this program do enough? I think it's fair. And it's a start, right? I mean, I'm sure they're going to be, right. you know, building on the services as they, as they grow. Marius, you had any thoughts on it? Well, okay, okay. so my my immediate answer is that as far as what the service encompasses, yeah, I think they've ticked all the important boxes. The the uh, the quick support, like access to a support phone line all the time is, is crucial. Um, the quick turnaround for repairs, uh, again, very, very important. The free cleanings, that's a nice perk. The try before you buy, also a great perk. Um, but fundamentally, this is not yet going to, again, I, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, but the, the problem that they have is that a lot of this stuff they're implementing now and they're going to reap the benefits five years from now. Right. When it's time to buy your next camera. Well, it's not just that. It's, it's also that if you're an established pro and you have 15 years worth of loyalty built up with Canon because they've had their support program for that long, you have relied on them. You have had hands-on experience of how that works and how they have come through for you. Um, switching to a new system with a new pro support program that is not as well proven, that is not as well um, established, that's a risky move. And it's a risky move in a way that um, I don't see a lot of high-level pros making that kind of transition until they've seen over the course of a couple of years at least that Sony is serious about this that they have a clear sense of where the company's taking all of this um, and that this whole pro support thing is going to be available for them in the contexts that they need it to be. Right. right? And that's something like Sony can come out today and claim that that's all in place. It's going to be great and it's affordable. And that's, that's awesome. That's really good. I think that they priced it right because it needs to be in no brainer territory to get early adopters in. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years time that price doubles because all of a sudden that network now covers you across all of North and South America and Europe or maybe worldwide. And maybe they have other perks in there now, um, you know, like they'll have a, a better established system in place and that costs a lot of money. Like that's the, that is the big hurdle for all of these mirrorless companies has been the support because Canon and Nikon have these massive established networks to help people with whatever their problem is quickly no matter where they are. And the mirrorless companies in general are just too small to do that right. quickly anyway. You know, so Sony's starting and that's great, but I don't it's like it's like with the A9 and uh the rest of their professionally oriented stuff. It doesn't matter that they're technically superior to a lot of the competition. It just takes time to build the trust that allows for a system switch when you're talking about the high professional level. It's really easy for us to switch systems. Right. You know, for, for those of us who, first of all, who love technology and who look at these things as toys that we happen to do work on, um, sure, we'll switch systems, no problem. But for pros that kind of don't like the technology and have this established workflow and all of that stuff, that's a that's a tough sell. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and I think Sony's doing all the right things, but it just, it takes time. It takes time to, to convince people. Yeah, and right now it, it is a very affordable price because I would pay a hundred bucks a year just to have my sensor clean three times within that year. That's, exactly. That's just no brainer. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd buy it just to throw that out there. In fact, if I get the A7 III and don't sell the a7 II. I'd have all the bodies I would need and all the kit I would need. So I might even buy it. Hmm. Would you do that though? If you do get an, an a7 III, would you keep a second camera? Like, would you keep the a7 II as a B cam? I I think so. I, I, I'm going to try hard. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping I can pull that off. I'm not sure like 
cash wise where the a7 III will end up especially with all like, yeah. this brutal foreign exchange stuff right now um yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I i'd like to keep it um but wouldn't you cool. rather have the a6500 as your backup body yeah, seems like you know, that gives you greater flexibility probably it does but i don't know i maybe but i'm not sure if if I'd be able to sell the A7 II and and uh, make up the difference in cash to buy the A6500, like probably it might not. be a bit of a cost there. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, I probably won't use it very often. Just like I almost never touch my Olympus camera anymore. Right. So, but anyway, at the very least, when it comes to the pro support, now, uh, admittedly, like it, it's not in Canada yet, so you know, useless for me. I'm not in the Toronto area, which is where it's going to start. Another reason to move to Toronto. I know. Here it comes. Um, <laughs> Um, so I didn't even have to say, <laughs> so like, I, you know, I, I expect that's where it's going to kind of start here in Canada, but it, it, you know, at the very least, like if they've got those try before you buy loans and a lot of those kind of things for a hundred bucks a year, a guy in my shoes, I might, it might be worth it. Yeah. And I think, I'm, yeah, like, like Alvaro said, if, even if just for the cleaning, yeah. um, it's 100% worth it. Cause you, you pay like 40 bucks per cleaning, um, taking it into a, your average camera store. So if they have a quick turnaround time and if you get three of those, per year for a hundred bucks, like just, just for that 100%, no problem. Yeah. And, and, um, and did they, did they say with the try before you buy loans, did they say what the loan period is? You know, I'm trying to find like the actual Sony, like pro support page. I'm having a really tough time right now finding right. like the actual, actual, the new one, because I think they've got one for like Sony alpha shooters, same type of requirements, but anyway, I'm just gonna, do some digging. Sony Alpha Rumors has got to be my favorite site right now for right all things A9. Yeah, I'm just curious because that would that would be an, another interesting thing to uh, just to, to get a better understanding. Like, does it mean you get it for two days? Do you get it for like a week? Right. Uh, is it one of those things where you're effectively buying it but you don't get charged until a week after you get it? Um, like, I, I'd right. just be interested to know what that uh, what that setup is like I've, because uh, I'm thinking in parallel to what. Um, Fujifilm did here in the Canadian retail um, market with a few a few vendors, at least in the Toronto area, but I'm pretty sure they did it out in Winnipeg as well, um, where they had a three-day try-before-you-buy program, but for anybody. And that was just the way that they sold the cameras. Uh, and the Like for Fujifilm products, you'd go into the store and you'd say, I want an X-T2, it'll be try-before-you-buy. So you get three days with it at right. home to shoot whatever you want before you actually put down the money, which I think sold them a lot of cameras. Um so this would just be, you know, like, do, does is this Sony's equivalent that just happens to be within the the pro support umbrella, or does it mean loan as in you get two weeks with the camera or two weeks right. with the lens or whatever it is? Right. right. Well, I'm trying to. I'm I'm reading the terms now, and I'm trying to see yeah. if it's stated here. The evaluation loan will last for two weeks, but may last longer in the event that it takes Sony or it or its authorized servicer a longer period of time to identify and repair issues hmm. but that's the evaluation right. loan that's that's weird that second yeah. half of it sounds like it's still talking about the repair loan <laughs> yeah but two weeks would be great i mean that's amazing i think that's it yeah because that yeah like how many people would have it'd be so hard to have an opportunity to like try a camera for two weeks and be like no i'm gonna return it now like they'd sell so many cameras doing it that way yeah hands-on is always the best way to sell stuff totally. right you just you put it in people's like just here use it just forget that just play right exactly. <laughs> that's, that's it 
I will carry all risk insurance on all loaned equipment loaned to me that has a list value greater than 3,000 US dollars. Which is pretty much everything they sell, so... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a battery pack. <laughs> Feels like it. Oh, man. Did we cover the Sony news? Did we, did we get through everything? I think we did fine. Have we made it clear that Josh is having a hard time keeping his wallet in his pocket? I don't. I don't know that you are now. Yeah. You went through. We, you had a rough couple of days where yeah. where you were going to buy an A nine, and we had to kind of tie you down. And Alvaro's got this good two week policy where he's like, okay, <laughs> if, he, if he thinks that if he's thinking about the same camera two weeks from now or same anything two weeks from now, then he's going to buy it, or then it's legit. And I've been probably falling off a little bit on the A nine thing, but I'm extremely excited for a, you know an A seven three to come this way or. An A seven R three or whatever's next. I, I'm, yeah. Th- this the A nine has served to like reignite a little bit of um, a little bit of not reignite, really create loyalty that I would have to Sony, um, right? Because it proves that they are like never before. You know, Apple doesn't listen to their customers like Sony listened to their customers with the A nine. This is this camera is addressed like probably nine out of ten things that everybody was asking for. I, I find that remarkable is that we were asking and this is what we got. I, I think that's really encouraging. It, it is. It is. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical. It, it can go too well, far. It can go too far. It's no not doubt. that. It's, it's I'm a little more skeptical that this was the result of them listening to their customers versus just that is what they needed to put in in order to like it's it was very clear that the whole market was putting in um, better AFs, point selection systems, dual card slots, things like that. Like that was just table stakes for a camera in 2017. That's not like Sony listened right, to the- Right, but, but that's people asking for yeah, it. Yeah. I, I think that the long effect there is that people were asking for it. And maybe they're just second to the table, right? Maybe right. Fuji beat them to it by lis- you know, listening a little quicker. That, that could very well be. But like I just got worried for a second that they would have this opinionated design where it was, no, we know what's best for you. This is how you're going to shoot with our cameras. And if that had come out, I would jump ship immediately. But uh, see, but I would never expect that from Sony. I expect that consistently from Leica, but I never that that's not how Sony has ever released a camera. They're always like, hmm. have all the things right. that we can do right now. <laughs> Everything that we are capable of making and implementing, we will put it in there. And if we don't have it, we will make it as an app that you can buy for the firmware. Like everything goes in. They're not, they are like the anti-opinionated camera company. <laughs> but I, I would argue that this is the first time that that's immediately clear. Like for sure, immediately clear. Like, you know, the A7 has a lot of things that are wrong with it. Um, and like the A6500 is an improvement on a lot of those things. And the A6500 didn't come out with a joystick. It didn't come out with dual SD card slots. It didn't come out with this. And that's a new camera. So I just, it's like Alvaro had hinted there that he thought maybe we would get touchscreen controls instead of a joystick control. Like that was what I got really worried about. I was kind of like, you know, I was preparing contingency plans in case that came out and it didn't come out. So now I'm like hands in the air, excited to see what comes down the comes down the tube, whether or not it is priced, you know, well beyond Josh range. I think the A7 III is going to be a pretty compelling camera for everybody. Like, it's going to be their full-on attack to the mainstream part of the market. Yeah, if they keep the A7 III in the 2K range, 2500 or so, um, I think that's going to be uh, the, the mirrorless camera that most people want to buy because it's got the... 
you know, the full frame check mark and that it'll have most of the key technologies from the A9, but it'll be slower. Right. Um, I think Which that'll be okay. the key differentiator is it, it, it's not going to do 20 FPS burst rate. It's not going to do, you know, it, and that's fine because, again, it's going to be the everyman's full frame camera. And, and definitely that like I think it's worth waiting for in your case specifically because a lot of the things that the A9 brings to the table um you would expect that their next camera would as well, right? Like there's not, right. you don't actually benefit from the specific advantages of the A9 in terms of speed. Like that's not something exactly. that applies directly to your shooting. So it's it's rather than paying a tremendous sum of money just to get that other stuff quicker, you know, a little bit more patience, especially because you've been so patient already in terms of waiting for them to, to release their camera. Now you know uh, sort of what to expect in a more clear manner. And it is only a matter of time before we see the next A7 iteration. And for sure, it's going to have, I would expect, all of the things that are actually important and that will actually improve upon your A7 II experience. So it'll just be a no-brainer. Fingers are crossed. Team Sony wins. <laughs> yes, Team Sony. 